Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin. My essay this week is called The Descent of a Dove and the Peace of Pentecost. It's based upon the lectionary readings for Sunday, May the 31st, 2009, the celebration of Pentecost. I once told a friend who's a film expert that when I watch a movie, I listen for a single sentence or a short dialogue that captures the entire film. I do the same thing, said Scott, but I look for an image that summarizes the movie. Christians identify themselves as people of the book who worship the word. It took a while, but Christians also became people of images and in those images, they expressed their faith as much as they did in words. In the marvelous book, Picturing the Bible, the Earliest Christian Art, 2007, Jeffrey Spear explains how the early Jesus movement first expressed itself in visual forms. Art and architecture flourished in classical Greece and Rome, of course, but the Christians were slow to express their religious beliefs pictorially. In no churches, decorated tombs, or Christian works of art of any kind datable before the third century are known. This might be because the early Christians were a persecuted and illicit sect comprised largely of people from lower socioeconomic classes. They also inherited Judaism's ambivalence toward art rooted in the prohibition against graven images in Exodus 24. <clears throat> but around the year 200, says Speer, purely Christian images began to appear. The 40 catacombs in and around Rome, along with the discovery of a house church at Dura Europus in Syria dated to the year 240 AD, show how the earliest Christian art was not merely decorative, but intentionally devotional. Its purpose was not objective beauty, but an expression of faith. In the first decades of the third century, then, genuine Christian art appears on seal rings, tombs, clay lamps, engraved gems, and in one instance, on a marble statuette. A hundred years after that, Christian art adorns belt buckles and Bible covers, plates and coins, intricate mosaics, and ornate crosses. Just as Christians portrayed Jesus as a shepherd, fish, anchor, or a lamb, the Holy Spirit was represented by a dove. The symbolism of the dove harkens back to when Noah sent a dove out from the ark to see if the floodwaters had receded. When the dove returned, we read in Genesis 8:11, there in its beak was a freshly plucked olive leaf. Peace and safety at last for all humanity. In all three synoptic gospels, when John baptized Jesus, the Spirit descended upon him 
as a dove. Matthew 3.16, Mark 1.10, and Luke 3.22. The spectacular illuminated Rapula Gospel from the 6th century, like thousands of similar images thereafter, reminds us that Pentecost celebrates the descent of the dove and the peace of the Spirit into our own lives today. The earliest Christian writers didn't say much about art and images, and Speer believes that their hostility towards visual representations has been exaggerated. Most of early Christian art drew upon well-known Bible texts like Noah, Daniel in the lion's den, Moses, Jonah, Adam and Eve, and Abraham. In perhaps the earliest textual reference to Christian art, Clement of Alexandria, who died in the year 215, writes that Christians could also borrow pagan symbols as long as they were appropriate. Swords and bows would be inappropriate, said Clement, because they signaled war and violence. But a dove was suitable, said Clement, quote, since we follow peace, end quote. And so, truly Pentecostal believers are people of peace and the descent of the dove. Seek peace and pursue it, wrote the ancient psalmist in Psalm 34, 14. Make every effort to live in peace with all people, Hebrews 12, 14. Make every effort to do what leads to peace, wrote Paul to the Romans, 1419. And as followers of the Prince of Peace, Isaiah 9, 6, we wish every person peace at all times and in every way, 1 Thessalonians 3.16. And in those famous words, blessed are the peacemakers, said Jesus. Matthew 5, 9. There's a fascinating commentary about the work of the Spirit in the life of Israel's first king, Saul. We read in 1 Samuel 10, 6 that when the Spirit of the Lord came upon Saul, quote, he was changed into another person, end quote. And so this Pentecost, I'm praying the peace prayer ascribed to St. Francis of Assisi. It captures the sort of radical change into another sort of person for which I pray. Lord, make me an instrument of your peace. Where there is hatred, let me sow love. Where there is error, truth. Where there is injury, pardon. Where there is doubt, faith. Where there is despair, hope. Where there is darkness, light. And where there is sadness, joy. O Divine Master, grant that I may not so much seek to be consoled as to console. To be understood as to understand, to be loved as to love. For it is in giving that we receive, 
It is in pardoning that we are pardoned. It is in self-forgetting that we find. And it is in dying to ourselves that we are born to eternal life. We don't know the actual author of this famous prayer, and it was not until the 1920s that it was even ascribed to St. Francis. <clears throat> but by one account, the prayer was found in 1915 in Normandy, written on the back of a card of St. Francis. But it certainly expresses his longing to be an instrument of peace in a violent world. In the Old Testament, the Hebrew word for spirit, ruach, means wind or breath. The very first sentences of the Bible describe God's spirit hovering over all creation like a tender mother, Genesis 1-2. And then in the New Testament, the spirit is called the paraclete, literally one called alongside to help, an encourager, a comforter, a counselor. And as we have just seen in the earliest art and images of the first believers, the Spirit is a dove of peace, descending into our lives to bring the presence of God's shalom. That is, anything and everything that nourishes human wholeness and well-being. The Descent of a Dove in the Peace of Pentecost For books this week, I review Phyllis Tickle, The Great Emergence, How Christianity is Changing and Why. Grand Rapids, Baker Bookhouse, 2008, 172 pages. For the last 20 years, Phyllis Tickle has been one of the more notable and quotable commentators on the changing landscape of American religion. In 1992, she became the founding editor of the Religion Department at Publishers Weekly. Along the way, she's written more than two dozen books and given interviews with major media outlets like Time Magazine, CNN, and PBS. Today, she's a senior fellow of Cathedral College at the National Cathedral in Washington, D.C. Tickle explores three questions in this short book. What is the Great Emergence? She uses a capital G and a capital E. How did it come to be? And thirdly, where is it going? She limits herself to Christianity in North America, but her overall trajectory is a prime example of the pleasures and pitfalls of grand theory writing. According to Tickle, there is a recurrent pattern when every 500 years Christianity sheds the incrustations of an overly established institution and reinvents itself. She sees a similar phenomenon, by the way, in Islam and Judaism. Pope Gregory the Great, who was born in the year 540, was the first great disruptor and preserver in this scheme, saving civilization through promoting monasticism. And then, 500 years later, in the year 1054, came the Great Schism when Roman Catholicism of the Latin West 
and Eastern Orthodoxy of the Greek East divided. And finally, right on schedule, came the Protestant Reformation in 1517. Closer to our own day, Tickle samples a handful of the three dozen or so signs of the times that indicate another major disruption and reinvention of the faith today. Darwin, Freud, Jung, Marx, and Einstein, science, the radio, the automobile, the rise of Pentecostalism, and even a group like Alcoholics Anonymous. Tickle acknowledges that such chronological markers and sweeping generalizations can be artificial and even superficial. Each person, movement, or invention gets only a paragraph or so of commentary. The Renaissance and the Enlightenment, for example, are barely even mentioned at all. Finally, in the last third of her book, Tickle explains how and why older categories of describing American Christianity are now passé. If and when the current 500-year Great Emergence matures, Tickle estimates that it will include about 60% of North American believers. And so we can forget about mainline denominations or categories like liberal and conservative. Rather, she suggests that we begin with four major trends. Liturgicals, renewalists, social justice Christians, and conservatives. And then imagine endless permutations and hybrids that mix, match, and cross-pollinate. Tickle's historiography is the sort that drives scholars crazy but there's no question about the phenomenon she describes. Whether it's as long-lasting or disruptive as 1054 or 1517 remains to be seen. For two good examples of what she describes, see the book by Brian McLaren with its suggestive subtitle. The book is called A Generous Orthodoxy, and then his subtitle, Why I Am a Missional evangelical, post-Protestant, liberal, conservative, mystical, poetic, biblical, charismatic, contemplative, fundamentalist, Calvinist, Anabaptist, Anglican, Methodist, Catholic, green, incarnational, depressed yet hopeful, emergent, and unfinished Christian. And secondly, another good book example would be Tony Jones' The New Christians. Dispatches from the Emergent Frontier. The name of the book, The Great Emergence, by Phyllis Tickle. For film this week, I review Sugar from the year 2008. Major League Baseball might be America's pastime, but this film reminds us that it takes a global talent search to make it work. The fictionalized story follows Miguel Sugar Santos from his dusty village in the Dominican Republic to an Iowa minor league team, and then to his final fortune in New York City as he chases his dream and family hopes and expectations to become a big league baseball player. 
Early on, though, we realize that this is not so much a baseball film. It's a story about the costs, consequences, and emotional dislocation of the immigrant experience to America. It's only a game, right? jokes Sugar's buddy. Well, yes and no. In watching this film, we learn why. Sugar himself, played by a non-professional actor named Alginus Perez Sotois, is the sweetest of characters. There isn't a single villain in this film, but Sugar's experience shines a brutally revealing light on the human factor behind the glitz and glamour of professional sports. Mainly in Spanish, with English subtitles. The name of the film, Sugar, 2008. And finally, for Pentecost Sunday, we posted a poem by John Dryden, Veni Creator Spiritus. Dryden lived from 1631 to 1700. He was an English poet, literary critic, translator, and playwright. John Dryden, Veni Creator Spiritus. Creator Spirit, by whose aid the world's foundations first were laid, Come, visit every pious mind. Come, pour thy joys on humankind. From sin and sorrow set us free, and make thy temples worthy thee. O source of uncreated light, the Father's promised paraclete, thrice holy fount, thrice holy fire, our hearts with heavenly love inspire. Come in thy sacred unction bring to sanctify us while we sing. Plenteous of grace descend from high, rich in thy sevenfold energy. Thou strength of his almighty hand, whose power does heaven and earth command. Proceeding spirit our defense, who dost the gift of tongues dispense and crown thy gift with eloquence. Refine and purge our earthly parts, but, O, oh, and flame and fire our hearts. Our frailties help, our vice control, submit the senses to the soul. And when rebellious they are grown, then lay thy hand and hold them down. Chase from our minds the eternal foe, in peace the fruit of love bestow. And lest our feet should step astray, protect and guide us in the way. Make us eternal truths receive, and practice all that we believe. Give us thyself that we may see the Father and the Son by thee. Immortal honor, endless fame, attend the Almighty Father's name. The Savior Son be glorified, who for lost man's redemption died. And equal adoration be, eternal paraclete, to thee. Veni Creator Spiritus by John Dryden
Thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net for Sunday, May 31st, 2009, Pentecost. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin.